This is Africa Digest. Good evening and welcome to Africa Digest. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, and we're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 9625 kilohertz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa and on DSTV's audio bouquet Channel 802. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Jalani Tulo, Amanda Machaka, and Tabison Dema. In our top stories on Africa Digest... Nigerian protesters have attacked the head office of South African mobile phone giant MTN in Abuja. And South Africa's Home Affairs Minister Malusi Gigaba expresses concern over a protest march planned against foreign nationals on Friday. But first up, the news with Jalani Tulo. Thank you, Lulu. Good afternoon. Nigerian protesters have attacked the head office of South African mobile phone giant MTN in Abuja in apparent retaliation for anti-Nigerian violence in Johannesburg and Cape Town. MTN says protesters vandalized equipment and stole customers' phones and iPads. The company says several people were also attacked at the customer care center. There have been several attacks in Pretoria West and Rosettenville in Johannesburg against foreigners accused of running drug dens and prostitution rings. Home Affairs Minister Malusuki Kaba has asked communities to treat foreigners with, sp- with respect. Meanwhile, Kikaba has expressed concern over a protest march planned against foreign nationals on Friday. He was briefing journalists in Parliament on recent xenophobic violence in South Africa. The march organized by the Mamelodi Concerned Residents is planned for the Pretoria CBD. Kikaba says he has made a plea to residents to be responsible. Disgruntlement raised by communities is around competition for jobs access to economic opportunities and alleged criminal activities involving foreign nationals, including amongst those drug peddling and prostitution, as well as the hijacking of houses. I have met with protest organizers and have appealed to them to express themselves responsibly. The Comores and Burundi have applied to be members of the Southern African Development Corporation. Whilst the Comores have experienced relative peace in the past five years, Burundi has been embroiled in civil strife due to last year's disputed elections. It's expected that the applications will be considered at the next SADC Leadership Summit in August. The 15-member SADC bloc is strategic for advancing issues of regional economic cooperation and is a strong proponent for the upholding of human rights and peace. South Africa will still push ahead with its plan to withdraw its membership from the Netherlands-based International Criminal Court, despite the country's High Court ruling which declared the decision unconstitutional. This is the view of Kajal Ramajan Kyo, Executive Director of the Southern African Litigation Center based in Johannesburg. A court has found that South African executive, the South African executive rather, violated the constitution when it notified the UN of its withdrawal from the ICC without prior parliamentary approval. Uh, Ram- Ramaja says the ANC, which is the governing party, will use its majority in parliament to push ahead with the plan to leave the tribunal. South Africa has been a member of the ICC for nearly 20 years. They have, in this 20-year period, 
already been mediating in conflicts and negotiating peace and facilitating peace with various countries. The membership of the ICC has not impeded this kind of work previously. Um, I think it is an excuse. South Africa has been internationally embarrassed by their failure to arrest President al-Bashir and by the huge international furore which followed this. And I think they're attempting to save face, but also they are a strong member state of the African Union, and the AU has now decided to promote a walk out of the ICC by member states, and South Africa is, has been supporting this process. So I don't think we'll see a reversal of the decision. And finally, gunmen have allegedly kidnapped two Germans from a village in northern Nigeria. Police have confirmed that gunmen took Peter and his associate Johannes from Jenjela village in Kaduna State on Wednesday morning. Assistant Superintendent of the police, Aliu Usman, says they are working with villagers to try to rescue them. The two Germans are part of a four-person team at a university in Frankfurt collaborating with Nigeria's National Commission for Museum and Monuments. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo. Thank you, Jalani. It's 505 Central African Time, and you're listening to Africa Digest, and I'm Lulu Gabu. A Southern African government says it is still planning to withdraw from the International Criminal Court, despite the ruling by the country's High Court, which declared the decision unconstitutional. The court has found that the executive violated the Constitution when it notified the United Nations of its withdrawal from the ICC without prior parliamentary approval. The South African government made the decision to withdraw from the Hague-based tribunal last year following an earlier court ruling that it was obligated to arrest Sudanese President Omar al-Bashir when he attended the African Union summit in Johannesburg. Channel Africa spoke to Kajal Ramjatan Kioch, Executive Director of the Southern Africa Litigation Center, about what the ruling means for South Africa and whether it could make the country to reconsider its decision to withdraw from the court. What happened at the High Court yesterday was that the court stated that the notice of withdrawal without prior parliamentary approval is unconstitutional and invalid. So it's, um, and what they were saying, that cabinet decision to deliver this notice of withdrawal to the United Nations without parliament's approval is unconstitutional. So the court decided very narrowly on those two issues exclusively. So the result of that is that the court has ordered the president, the minister of justice, the minister of international relations, they have been ordered to revoke the notice of withdrawal. It does not mean that South Africa can now no longer withdraw from the ICC. All it means is that the process which was followed, as well as the substantive grounds of withdrawal, were not were, were in, unconstitutional and invalid, and South Africa will now need to correct that procedure. South Africa is considered to be a leader on the continent in terms of uh, its role of maintaining peace and security. In fact, this is one of the reasons why South Africa decided to withdraw from the court following the matter involving Sudanese President Omar 
al-Bashir, who visited the country last year but not apprehended despite South Africa's obligation to arrest him and hand him over to authorities. Do you think South Africa has a point here, Kajal, in saying that the Rome Statute, which compels it to arrest heads of state of foreign countries wanted by the International Criminal Court, is impeding on its role of engaging with African leaders in a quest to resolve conflicts on the continent? I don't agree with that position. South Africa has been a member of the ICC for nearly 20 years. They have, in this 20-year period, already been mediating in conflicts and negotiating peace and facilitating peace with various countries. The membership of the ICC has not impeded this kind of work previously. Um, I think it is an excuse South Africa has been internationally embarrassed by their failure to arrest President al-Bashir and by the huge international furore which followed this. And I think they're attempting to save face, but also they are a strong member state of the African Union and the AU has now decided to promote a walk out of the ICC by member states and South Africa is, has been supporting this process. So I don't think we'll see a reversal of the decision, um, but I don't think that it's necessarily true that South Africa is being impeded in its role to facilitate and negotiate peace on the African continent by its membership of the International Criminal Court. Now, what happens from now? The court ruled striking down the South African government's notice to withdraw from the court. Does this mean the application process to leave the tribunal will be halted for now pending the next course of action by the South African government? The court was very clear that they were not sus- there was no suspension order. So they haven't suspended any action. What they have said is that the president and the two ministers must immediately revoke the notice of withdrawal. Once the notice is revoked, South Africa will have to take a fresh decision and then forward a fresh notice of withdrawal to the United Nations. So in terms of the timeline, the ball is now in South Africa's court. They will first need to revoke the original notice of withdrawal, ask Parliament to debate these issues and arrive at a decision of whether or not to leave the ICC. And with a fresh decision from Parliament, they they could transmit that to the United Nations. The timeline depends on when South Africa starts these actions. Do you think the decision by South Africa last year to leave the court has dented the country's reputation as a defender of human rights? I, I do think that the decision to leave the ICC has dented South Africa's international reputation and reputation as a defender of human rights. Um, However, that position within the view of African countries might be slightly different because African countries are concerned about the ICC and their role in negotiating peace in African countries. So it might be that while non-African states do see this as a damage to the state's reputation, African states, not all African states may feel the same way. African leaders have adopted a strategy calling for a collective withdrawal from the International Criminal Court at the recent African Union Summit in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Now, apart from South Africa intending to leave the court, we have uh, uh, countries such as Burundi, 
which has already withdrawn its membership and Gambia intended to leave the court, but that decision has been rescinded by the new president. Do you think we are more likely to see more African countries withdrawing from the court or has the attitude of African leaders softened somewhat towards the court? It's, it's difficult to determine that at this point. I think the AU decision may encourage states who don't support the ICC to also leave the court. But it's, it's an interesting situation because many African countries, most of the investigations into African countries have been self-referrals where these same states have requested the ICC's intervention in their countries because they've seen the value of that intervention. So I don't think necessarily African countries are going to rush to withdraw from the, from the ICC, but certainly countries like Burundi who are not known for their strong human rights record will seek to leave. That was Kajal Ramjatan Kioch, Executive Director of the Southern Africa Litigation Centre, speaking to Channel Africa's Kumbero Munjelele. The United Nations mission in the Democratic Republic of Congo has expressed concern about the presence of the former rebellion of March 23rd movement in the country's eastern province of North Kivu. The rebel movement, known as M23, was defeated three years ago by both the UN forces and the DRC National Army. MINUSCO has has also called on the implementation of the peace, security and cooperation framework. Januel Bamweze reports from Kinshasa. The Peace, Security and Cooperation Framework was signed in the Kenyan capital city Nairobi under the guarantee of the international community. The agreement allowed the March 23rd rebel movement to become a political party after being defeated in the North Kivu province. The neighboring countries promised each other to stop supporting any destabilizing movement. Most of the M23 combatants fled to both Rwanda and Uganda, but as a big surprise, the rebel movement presence is reported once more in some areas of North Kivu, where they have started clashing with the National Army. Monusco spokesperson Felix Basses told the Channel Africa all the necessary measures will be taken to solve the issue. We learned about the presence of M23 in uh, the province of North Kivu coming from Uganda but also coming from Rwanda and uh, we are taking uh, very seriously this information and it's a concern that needs to be tackled by the security forces of the DRC but also with the support of MONUSCO. We are also calling on all signatories of the Peace, Security and Cooperation Framework that was signed in Nairobi in order to implement the document that they have signed. Because that document was signed under the guarantee of the UN, the ICGLR, the African Union and other stakeholders. What we can say in this is that we are determined and working in close cooperation with the DRC security forces in order to dig up more about this information that we are receiving and also together plan the adequate response to the new threat posed by the M23 to the civilian population. So we are working closely and we are determined if the M23 didn't lay their arms into the DRC territory, I know that uh, with the DRC security forces we will take all necessary measures. The UN mission here is not accusing any country of supporting the 23rd rebel movement but what it emphasizes is that the peace, security and cooperation framework was signed by 11 countries. Monusco then insists on 
the implementation of that agreement, although both the UN mission forces and the DRC National Army are determined and ready to neutralize all the armed groups operating here. Once more, the mission spokesperson Felix Bass explains. The DRC security forces supported by MONUSCO are in close cooperation, analyzing on a daily basis, exchanging information, but also putting in place strategies in order to tackle this new threat posed by the M23. If M23 cross the DRC borders with weapons, of course, our mandate is to protect the civilian, to support the security forces of the DRC, to neutralize all armed groups, including the M23. All 11 countries from the ICGLR organization have signed the document. And in that document, they have to abide by the signatures. So this is what I can say. But, uh, you know, I'm not accusing no one. The only thing I can tell you is we are ready, prepared, determined, along with the DRC security forces, to neutralize all armed groups, including the M23, as stipulated by Security Council Resolution 2277. Meanwhile, inhabitants of the North Kivu province are now living under serious panic due to the presence of those M23 rebels in that part of the Democratic Republic of Congo. Channel Africa Kinshasa, Jean-Noël Bamweze. Now it's 16 minutes after 5 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Digest. My name is Lulu Gabu. Now during his budget speech, South Africa's finance minister Pravin Gordon stressed the need to radically transform the economy so that there's a more diversified economy with more jobs and inclusivity in ownership and participation. Grant Thornton, one of the world's leading independent assurance tax and advisory firm, has welcomed this. South Africa has one of the highest inequality in the world. In yesterday's budget speech, high-income earners got the shock of their lives when an increase of from 41 to 45% was announced on their personal income tax. The Southern African nation is grappling with a low tax base and a high tax burden. Now, to talk to us more on this, we're now joined on the line by Head of the Advisory Services at Grant Thornton, Julian Saunders. Julian, good evening and thank you so much for joining us on Africa Digest. Good evening, Lulu. It's a pleasure. Now, Julian, what do you make of the Minister's budget speech? There's been a lot of mixed reactions. Some people are happy, some people are not happy. Um, what's your take on this uh, budget speech? I think overall it was a balancing act, and I think um, Minister Gordon managed to achieve a reasonable balance. He has certainly made sure that it approaches and deals with the transformation agenda and the economic uh, reform and the sort of changing the, the balance, if you like, in the country, which we need to do to bring in more inclusive economic growth where everybody can benefit from it. And, um, yeah, it's, uh, much else he couldn't do. He needed to increase tax revenues because we had to increase spending. He's kept within reasonable limits in terms of things like the budget deficit, um, the percentage of debt to GDP. So we haven't, we haven't, you know, we haven't burst into anything crazy in those sort of areas. So it was a tough balancing act. But really and truly, having said all of that, he did apply a lot of taxes to the upper classes and the people who are fairly rich, which is not a lot of people. So they are going to be burdened with, a, like you mentioned, a 45% tax rate for people over 1.5 million taxable income. And essentially, when you unpack the budget, about two-thirds of the spending is going to be to the poor and for social 
spending in our country. So we're taking from the rich to assist the poor, which is not necessarily a bad thing. Um, but in terms of taxing the rich people, for want of a better word, we, um, we have some numbers shown to us this morning where about 2% of the population pay a huge percentage of our tax revenues, only 2%. And the people who earn more than 1.5 million, it's only about 103,000 people in the country. You know, Gillian, so just to come in there... Yeah. Jillian, just to come in there, just speaking of uh, the tax hike from 41% to 45%, um, does it not also create some sort of hindrance? Because if you look at the people who are earning, um, say, up to 1.5, for instance, uh, it's, it's uh, the middle class of, of the country. And the wealthy are looking at this and saying, okay, it's 45%, all right, it's fine. We'll work around it. We'll come up with uh, um, these tax incentives. We'll come up with ways of ensuring that uh, they don't pay the 45%. How will um, the minister or government work around that? As, as, as it stands, because as it is, there's the wealthy um, are able to work around the tax. Well, Lily, I'm not sure I agree with you. First of all, it's certainly not the middle class. As I mentioned, 1.5 million and above earners, there's only 103,000 in the country. That's not the middle class. That's the serious upper classes. Okay, so it's people on very high salaries. Most people aren't anywhere near that. But I think it has two unintended consequences. One is those individuals typically also are the people who run the large corporations are involved in all the economic activity in this country. There's a lot of other levels of uncertainty over economic activity, and now the people could emigrate tomorrow. They could close down their firms, take their investments out of the country, and take their own money and leave this country. So I think it's an incentive to emigrate. It's also an incentive, let's say you are an entrepreneur, and you've got a business, and your business is growing. There's no incentive to grow it any further until you can earn yourself a salary at that level. It's a disincentive to... Um, pursuing economic growth and pursuing corporate growth because what's the point if by the time I tip my own income over one and a half million I'm going to get taxed at 45 percent so I do think it has dis- it has unintended consequences um, but you know it, it's only it's a threshold thing so it's what you earn over 1.5 million you go up to 45 percent if you do there's a handful of people who earn significantly more than 1.5 million they will have their tax rate go up. Some of the calculations I've seen say their average tax rate might go up by as much as six percentage points, which is a lot. It's a lot. All right, Gillette. Now, let's speak about uh, the economy, um, which uh, a, a lot of people, reaction, for instance, from um, Kosatu and uh, um, their affiliates, was that uh, they're, they're not too happy. didn't really say much about how um, jobs were going to be created, about uh, land uh, redistribution and all those in, in terms of what needs to happen to assist um, poor people to improve their lives. He didn't really delve much into it as they had expected him to. Your take on that? I would have tend to agree so there was a lot of talk about transformation, but in terms of real hard um, action plans and interventions, there wasn't much. But I do believe that if you actually unpack it, there was a lot of budget went to, for instance, uh, quite a large new amount of budget went to simulating SMMEs quite a lot of budget into education at all levels. And one of the main things we need to make the economy grow is to get good education, starting from early childhood, basic edu- early childhood education, which is critical for later performance in education through primary school, through t- and uh, up to tertiary education. That is vitally important to get the economy growing. I think there was also a number of, of, of programs to stimulate or assist in poverty, but not necessarily related to economic activity in poverty. The social grants did go up by a reasonable amount. Let's hope that we're able to pay them at the end of next month. Um, <laughs> so, so I think, I think 
he, he was hamstrung. There's not a lot of money around, but he gave money to some important places. He talked about job creation. Myself, I do a lot of work in the tourism industry. He put quite a bit of extra budget into tourism promotion. Tourism is a great job creator. But I would tend to agree that as an overall economic growth and stimulatory growth budget, there wasn't enough to really say, hey, this is like a new paradigm. We're going to really do things to stimulate economic growth and job creation. But there were some things there. There were some things. Okay. And now let's look at uh, growth in the economy. Um, the figures that he spoke about were not really much. I think he said 1.3%, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 1.3% for this year, yes. Yes, it's, it's, it's very, very low. How do we, uh, do you think the changes or um, what he's delivered to to the country with regards to the budget speech and the plans from Treasury and uh, and all all, all involved and, you know, taking money from the taxation of the wealthy and all of that, is it going to help in bringing investors into the country? Probably, unfortunately not. I don't think there was anything in the budget that was a real stimulus for new investment into South Africa. And so there's a degree of uncertainty that we have, and it's not um, budgetary uncertainty or fiscal uncertainty, it's more policy uncertainty, like mining policy, um, like um, renewable energy and purchasing um, from, pushing from private energy supplies, and all sorts of things like that that we never finalize gives a lot of uncertainty. So investment wasn't hugely encouraged by the budget. But I do think... I mean, one way of looking at it, if you want to look at it in the positive ways, in prior years, the last two years, we've been revising growth figures down all the time. At this point, we didn't revise them down. We kept them at 1.3%, and it creeps up to 2% and a bit beyond 2%. And I think one of the biggest stimuluses for us in economic growth is that the rest of the world is also ticking upwards in economic growth. Commodity prices are increasing. The drought has, gone, has, has been broken. Things that impact on our growth. So relative to other years and relative to certainly a year ago, we're looking a little bit more positive about economic growth, but I have to say that it's not enough. In order to sustain the job creation we need in this country, we need significantly more or higher levels of growth. Gillian, unfortunately, we have run out of time. Thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure, Lulu. Thank you. That was Gillian Saunders, Head of Advisory Services at Grant Thornton, an independent assurance tax and advisory firm. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. For Channel Africa, I'm Lillian Strobach, reporting from the ICC in The Hague. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango. Channel Africa, Blantyre. This is Lansana Fofana reporting for Channel Africa from Freetown. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Konyo in Nairobi. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. It's 26 after 5 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Africa Digest. Two international lobby groups, Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International, have released their 2017 World Report, which paints a bleak picture of respect for human rights. 
A State of the World's Human Rights by Amnesty International delivers the most comprehensive analysis of the state of human rights around the world, covering 159 countries. On the other hand, Human Rights Watch World Report 2017 summarizes key human rights issues in more than 90 countries and territories worldwide. It reflects investigative work that Human Rights Watch staff undertook in 2016, usually in close partnership with human rights activists in the country in focus. To look at these two reports, we earlier spoke to Dewa Mabinga, Human Rights Watch Southern Africa Director and NETS. Netanet Belay, Amnesty International's Africa Director for Research and Advocacy. Human rights are those entitlements that everyone has by virtue of being human, of being born, which is that these are uh, things that cannot be taken away, and they are contained uh, in a number of uh, international treaties uh, under the United Nations, uh, So, but and they cover a broad spectrum uh, from civil and political rights such as you know uh, the right to access to information, the right to vote, and things like that, uh, to economic, social, and cultural rights, where you have uh, the right to education for everyone, the right to health, the right to food. And uh, individual countries, especially on the continent of Africa, where we focus on um, from Southern Africa, you would see that uh, each country would have um, uh, usually a Bill of Rights in its constitution, and this Bill of Rights would also outline what each country commits to in terms of respecting uh, the rights of all the people in a particular country. But uh, for us, what we monitor is we work in more than 90 countries globally. Uh, we try and uh, monitor, investigate uh, human rights abuses or violations, and then we bring together reports, and then we do high-level advocacy with governments for mm policy change so that there is a continuous improvement of uh, human rights to save lives and to improve uh, livelihoods. In terms of this particular report that you've just released, it's titled The State of Human Rights. Tell us a little bit of some of the areas that were concerned for you as uh, uh, especially an African representation of uh, the report. Uh, Tell us a little bit what came out in terms of Africa. In terms of Africa, from the point of view of Human Rights Watch, our concerns are that some of the most serious abuses or violations uh, occur uh, in the context of conflict on the continent. And you will be aware that there are a number of uh, hot spots in terms of uh, violence. There is a commitment at the African Union level uh, for the silencing of the guns on the continent by 2020. And we believe this would really go a long way. Amnesty International's Africa Director for Research and Advocacy, Netanet Belay and Dewa Mavinga, Human Rights Watch Southern Africa Director, speaking to Benjamin Mushadama. Our headlines up next with Jalani Tulo. Thank you, Lulu. Making headlines, Nigerian protesters have attacked the head office of South African mobile phone giant MTN in Abuja in apparent retaliation for anti-Nigerian violence in Johannesburg and Cape Town. South Africa will still push ahead with its plan to withdraw its membership from the International Criminal Court, despite the country's high court ruling, which declared the decision unconstitutional. And finally, the Comoros and Burundi have applied to be members of the South Af- Southern African Development Corporation. For Chalama Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo.
Thank you, Shalani. Now, questions are being raised about the sneaky way in which former Chief Executive Officer of South Africa's power utility, Brian Malefa, was sworn into Parliament. Malefa joined Parliament following a nomination by the Northwest Province branch of the ruling African National Congress. The former CEO left ESCOM after the State of Capture report found that he had had a questionable relationship with the politically connected business family, the Guptas. Since the announcement of Malefa's position as a member of parliament, speculation has been rife that he is set to replace Finance Minister Pravin Gordon as a cabinet reshuffle seems to be imminent. Now to talk to us more on this, we're now joined on the line by Executive Director at Corruption Watch, David Lewis. David, good evening and thank you so much for joining us. Hello, David. We seem to have lost David on the line. We will try and get him back to just go through this and chat about it and what the implications are with regards to Brian Malefe being um, sworn in as a member of parliament. Brian Malefe is the former chief executive officer of South Africa's power utility, ESCOM, who resigned from the power utility um, after the state of capture report found that he had had a questionable relationship with the politically connected business family, the Guptas. In other news, despite the fact that Kenya's coastal region is lucky to have a giant share of the Indian Ocean, the potential of fish harvesting from the ocean is not well tapped. This is why environmental scientists are urging Kenyans to embrace the blue economy, which refers to the fishing industry, both marine and freshwater, for food security. Diana Wanyonyi reports from Mombasa. Coastal communities in Kenya have depended on fishing for centuries, thus providing employment and food to thousands of households. But fishermen based in Mombasa's old town port are lamenting the inadequate fish stock in the Indian Ocean, blaming on the unpredictable weather change caused by climate change. Abdul Karim Said, a fisherman for 10 years, explains how difficult strong winds make fishing on the ocean. <laughs> Now I'm seeing as if blessings are over. The ocean is very harsh and there's no fish at all when you go to the ocean to fish. We only return with two or one kilo of fish, a problem caused by strong winds, I guess, tsunami. Now we do not catch red snapper and goldfish because of the strong winds in the ocean. I remember during the previous years, we used to catch them during this period, but now we do not get them when we go fishing. Due to the strong winds in the sea, especially the deep sea, we are not able to go there. We are very frightened to go. Another fisherman, Hassan Dula, blames weather patterns that has resulted in the disappearance of different marine species, saying that it has affected the quality of fish harvested. The weather is so bad. At least at night, the strong winds have reduced, but we only harvest not more than two kilos a harvest. That does not enable us to refill our boat with petrol if we sell the fish. We can't go to the deep sea using this boat because from here at the old port harbor to there, that's not paying due to these strong winds. Despite the fact that fishermen are allowed to fish up to 200 nautical miles from the shorelines, the catch is still low, resulting in the import of fish from China for domestic consumption. 
Kenya National Bureau of Statistics, a government entity that deals with data, further indicates that Kenya's fish imports from China grew from 259 Kenyan shillings, that is equivalent to 259 US dollars in 2013, to 1 billion Kenyan shillings, which is equivalent to 1 million US dollars in 2015. Additional statistics from the Ministry of Fisheries in Mombasa County indicate that the marine fishery sector has the potential to produce 150,000 to 300,000 metric tons of fish annually, but only 9,000 metric tons was produced in 2015 compared to countries like Somalia, which produced 132,000 metric tons the same year. But thanks to the Kenya Coastal Development Project, KCDP, an initiative financed by the World Bank and the Global Environmental Facility and hosted by the Kenya Marine and Fisheries Research Institute, Kemfri, with the aim of strengthening the capacity of coastal communities, there is hope that Kenya has expanded its potential of tapping into the blue economy. Dr. Jacqueline Uku is the project manager of Embracing the Blue Economy for Africa's Accelerated Development at KCDP. She elaborates more on the project. Our economy at the coast is smallholder farming, subsistence forestry, a seasonal fishery, livestock, and small-scale trade. And so as KCDP, we began a journey to impact in these areas. We began to find we were leveraging a lot more and we were finding a lot more benefit as we went along. She says coastal and marine resources, if well managed, can contribute substantially to economic growth and the reduction of poverty through the Blue Growth Initiative. We have been focusing on vulnerable and marginalized groups, and this just shows how we fish on a regular basis. You'll find lone fishermen out struggling. It's a way of life, it's a culture, but then you'll go to some places and you'll find they have aggregated, they have better gear, and they're able to get a better catch. And so we are trying to work with selected groups to understand whether when they consolidate their effort, they're able to get a better catch and better productivity from the sea that is also more sustainable. The main areas in focus of the Kenya Coastal Development Project is to enhance wealth creation and benefits from the blue economy through support for the commercialization of the marine fisheries and aquaculture, support of the infrastructure and the training of youths and women to tap into the fishery potential. Dr. Uku explains more. As we've been thinking blue, we've been thinking of gears. What types of gears do fishermen use and how can we improve them? And one area we've supported in terms of gear support is basket trap fishery and improving that fishery so that we stop wasting the high level of wastage. That was Dr. Jacqueline Oku, project manager of the Kenya Coastal Development Project, KCDP. In November last year, the Kenya Commercial Bank Foundation, in partnership with the county government of Mombasa, launched the first ever locally owned fishing vessel, MV Mombasa 001, which was locally constructed at a cost of 15 million Kenyan shillings, that is around 15,000 US dollars, with the aim of increasing fish harvest in the country to over 40,000 kilograms per month. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Dan Wanyonyi in Mombasa, Kenya. 
The Life After Coal campaign and the Centre for Environmental Rights says it is dismayed to learn that South Africa's power utility Eskom is once again reapplying for postponements of standards it was legally required to meet almost two years ago. Robin Hugo, head of Centre for Environmental Rights Pollution and Climate Change Programme, explains. So I'm the head of the Pollution and Climate Change Programme at the Centre for Environmental Rights. We activist lawyers who help communities and civil society organisations realise our constitutional right to a healthy environment. And we do that by advocating and litigating for environmental justice. We're in a joint campaign called Life After Coal with Groundwork and Earth Life Africa Johannesburg. And what that aims to do is three main things. We want to discourage investment in new coal-fired power stations and mines, accelerate the retirement of South Africa's existing coal infrastructure, and importantly, encourage and enable a just transition to renewable energy systems for the people. So a big part of that work is about holding ESCOM to account for its pollution and its impacts on people's health and well-being and the environment. Just to give you a bit of background to the current application that you talked about, already in December 2013, ESCOM applied to an official at the Department of Environmental Affairs, the National Air Quality Officer. They say they wanted to postpone compliance with all but one of their coal-fired power stations with these air pollution standards that were set in a multi-year, multi-stakeholder process. And what those standards do is they govern the amount of pollutants that their stations are allowed to emit from the 1st of April 2015, and then they become stricter on the 1st of April 2020. So ESCOM participated in this process. It was an active and vocal participant, and the standards were then published in March 2010. So ESCOM has had a long time and ample opportunity to take the necessary steps to reduce their emissions to make sure that they can comply with the emission standards. But what's happened now is that ESCOM is once again applying to postpone compliance with the pollution standards. This time, it's reapplying for postponements of certain standards that it had to meet almost two years ago. So, as I said, those standards first kicked in in April 2015, and now in February 2017, ESCOM is saying we can't comply with the April 2015 standards for Madupi, which, as you know, is a brand-new coal-fired power station that's currently under construction, and Matimba, which are the two power stations in Limpopo, Lepalale. So what it's done so far, it's come as published a background information document about these postponements, and comments on that are due tomorrow. They will be available on our website, which is cer.org.za. But at the time that of their first postponement application, and by the way, our standards, our minimum emission standards, they're called, they're already weak compared to international standards. But ESCOM claimed, among other reasons, they said it's too expensive for us to comply, it's going to cause load shedding, it's going to require too much water, and this is despite the fact that they'd done their own health impact studies already in 2006 that said that there were significant numbers of respiratory hospital admissions and deaths caused by its own station's emissions and significant delays, which means that actually this deadline is impossible to meet. So ESCOM's current estimate is that they're only going to have flue gas desulfurization, which is the sulfur dioxide abatement means, the way to limit the emissions. They're only going to have that installed by 2026, and they don't ever plan to do it for Matimba nor for any of the other coal-fired power stations. So what we're saying in our media release that we published in the last few days and in our 
submissions that are going to come out on the 24th of February is that this non-compliance with the law is going to expose those people that are impacted by particularly Madupi and Matimba's air emissions to extremely harmful sulfur dioxide pollution for an even longer period. What would be the recourse of the people living in and around the area as it is that they're going to be exposed to dangerous gases like, as you mentioned, sulfur dioxide? So they need to report this to the Green Scorpions and they can also, of course, make submissions opposing this postponement application. So there's a hotline that's available on the Department of Environmental Affairs website and they also must, we say, they should participate in the public process for ESCOM's now trying to seek a postponement because actually if you don't comply with your license, that's an offence, which means it's a crime, which is, of course, you would have to go to court and prove it beyond reasonable doubt. But also the green scorpions could come and issue you with a a compliance notice. And if you don't comply within a certain amount of time, it's also possible to have your license revoked. So really we think people that are impacted by these emissions should be agitating and reporting and complaining about ESCOM's non-compliance, which is effectively poisoning them. So the environmental implications in the area, how dire are they? It's very serious. As I say, the Waterberg is sort of the next big region from which coal is, there are plans to extract coal. One of the biggest problems with the Waterberg is that there is very limited water. So the other power station that I mentioned, Tabametsi, we actually in court about that next week. And we're saying the climate change impacts haven't been properly assessed. So there's serious impacts for water, for climate, for air quality, for soil quality, all of these things that are part of the very serious consequences of coal-fired power stations and coal mines. That was Robin Hugo, head of Centre for Environmental Rights, Pollution and Climate Change Program, speaking to Wandile Kalipa. Our economics updates up next with Amanda Machaka. Thank you, Lulu. Good evening. Barclays Africa says the terms of its separation from British-based Barclays have been agreed and head office will pay 988 million U.S. dollars. The agreed contribution will help enhance investments required in technology, rebranding and other separation projects. Details of a black economic empowerment scheme are still under consideration. Barclays Africa Chief Executive Maria Ramos says it is a good outcome. Barclays announced a year ago that it intended to sell the majority of its shareholding in Barclays Africa. Malawian President Peter Mutarika has fired Minister of Agriculture, Irrigation and Water Development George Chaponda from his cabinet with immediate effect. Chaponda's firing comes barely a day after anti-corruption bureau raided his Lilongwe residence and seized millions worth of foreign currencies, including U.S. dollars, South African rands and Botswana bulas. Chairperson of the Joint Committee on Parliamentary Affairs, Chidanti Malunga. I think this is good news for us, and uh, the president has done the right thing. As you know, that in our report, we recommended that he, the minister, or the former minister now, be investigated by ACB. And uh, um, uh, you cannot be investigated if you are still serving. So uh, looking at his acts uh, recently, he was not willing to step down on his own. So firing him is the correct thing to do. So.
Workers in Gabon have gone on strike at their morale at Prom Gabon SA oil field, oil field rather, halting production of 28,000 barrels per day. Gabon is Africa's fourth largest oil producer with an output of around 220,000 barrels per day, dominated by international oil majors Total and Shell. The French oil company operates the Onal and Cocal sites. The workers want a separation allowance worth six months' salary per year of service following the sale of a 72.65% stake in the company to Indonesian national oil company Petamina. South Africa's Finance Minister Pravin Gordon says ratings agencies don't have a say in the country's fiscal and political sovereignty. Gordon was briefing Parliament's Finance Committee on the 2017 budget he presented on Wednesday. We, we don't allow them to govern South Africa. Let's be absolutely clear. They can say what they like. That's, that's their view. Uh, and we can then decide what we want to do as South Africa. So we have both political sovereignty and fiscal sovereignty. The question is whether in the way we manage our finances and our budgets and our expenditure and our discipline, we are sacrificing our fiscal sovereignty. You see, that's the question. South Africa's energy regulator says the country's power utility, ESCOM, will be allowed to request a higher tariff for the 2017-2018 financial year. This after it announced it had allowed the power utility to raise its electricity prices by 2.2% for the period. NASA Chair Jacob Mudise has told a news conference in the capital, Pretoria, they have opened the door for ESCOM to again apply for higher tariffs. In our financial indicators, the U.S. dollar is trading at 13.9 South African rand, 10.34 Botswana Pula and 9.70 Zambian Kwacha. It's at 0.80 to the British pound, at 0.94 to the euro. In commodities, gold is at $1,236 and platinum at $995 an ounce. The price of print crude oil is at $56.30 a barrel. That's all for now. Recapping our top stories on Africa Digest, South Africa still plans to withdraw from ICC despite a court ruling to the contrary. And Kenya plans to upscale plans to tap into the ocean economy. Africa Digest today from myself, Lulu Gabu. Oh, rather, geez, I'm in a rush. I'm in a rush. Amanda, you're so infectious. <laughs> our sports update up next with Tavis and Deva. <laughs> Good evening, sports fans. I'm Tabison Tema with the latest sports update at this hour. We begin with football-related news. Africa is seeking to double the number of places it has at the expanded World Cup. The Continent's Football Association presidents have told soccer's world governing body FIFA. Africa wants at least 10 spots in the 48-team World Cup that FIFA president Gianni Infantino has proposed for 2026. This would double the five places the continent has at the next two finals in Russia 
and in Qatar in 2022. This is how FIFA President Gianni Infantino responded to the continent's request. First thing you have to look forward to is uh, the number of teams from Africa which will participate in the World Cup. Because uh, after many talks for many years about, yeah, but uh, Africa should be more represented and so on, nobody has done anything concrete. Everyone is good at speaking. But when it comes to acting, it's a different story. Europe is seeking a minimum of 16 places, up from 13. It also wants its sites to be separated from the 16 opening round groups of three, with the top two advancing to a 32-team knockout phase under plans approved by FIFA last month. Asia expected to get eight to nine places compared to four and a half they have at the moment. South America, which has a 10-member countries, wants six places up from four and a half they currently have. English-speaking Cameroonians are massively boycotting ceremonies to present the 2017 African Football Cup of Nations trophy Cameroon won in Gabon. Authorities are using the trophy as a symbol of national unity, but pressure groups from English-speaking regions say they do not feel that unity as they are treated as second-class citizens. Muki Kinzeka followed the trophy to the French-speaking West region where there was massive celebrations and to the English-speaking Northwest region, marred by violence and resentment, and filed this report. As the traffic crosses the border from Bafusam to Bamenda, capital of the English-speaking Northwest region of Cameroon, it meets this group of a hundred jeering and booing youths. Their leader, Grigory Acho, says they are protesting the massive presence of the military deployed by Bia, to towns and villages in the northwest region and the decision by the government to impose an internet blackout. It's not moving, it's not moving. These are not moving. We want internet back, we want internet back. We want peace. We want peace. We want peace. Violence escalated in the English-speaking northwest and southwest regions from a strike action called by teachers and lawyers to protest what they called the overbearing influence of the French majority. They said the minority Anglophones were considered as second-class citizens by the majority French-speaking Cameroonians. The protest escalated when pressure groups started asking for the creation of a federal state, one for the French-speaking regions and the other for the English-speaking regions of the country. And Foggy, an official of the Cameroon Ministry of Sport, has condemned the English-speaking Cameroonians for protesting the Afghan Trophy Parade. He says they should be celebrating with the rest of the country to show their support for the country's achievements, despite the challenges faced by all. The victory was for all Cameroonians, and all Cameroonians would have been happy about it instead of boycotting it because it was not a political issue. So the people of Bamenda were supposed to be happy that they had a continental trophy after a very long time. It's not a political issue. The victory is for all Cameroonians, and it's, I think we should be happy about it. On to rugby news. The 2017 Super Rugby season kicked off with a tie between the Rebels and the Blues in Melbourne, Australia on Thursday, marking round one of the competition, which will continue until Sunday. The Blues got off to a flying start with a 56 points to 18 win over the Rebels. Blues captain Jimmy Tupou was happy to have started this year's campaign with a win. Pretty happy with the result. Uh, credit to the Rebels. Uh, you know, no matter what the scores, they still uh, keep coming at us. 
We thought there'd be lots of points out there, and there was tonight. Really open game, nice flow to it. Yeah, yeah, I've uh, you know, got a bit of confidence and uh, got a bit of time on the ball. So, uh, yeah, it's good to see the boys uh, finish off some good tries. We've seen the Blues before drift in and out of games tonight. Seem to have it all for the 80 minutes. Uh, no soft moments in that second half. Yeah, that's something we've been working really hard uh, during the preseason. It's just um, been having those uh, consistent performances, and uh, I felt like tonight we got that. Congratulations on a good win. Cheers, Kefa. Thanks, man. Rebels captain Colby Fainga says they should have done better and regretted his team's loss of concentration, which he says swung the match in favour of the Blues. Extremely promising in the first half. Um, we probably just let the 50-50s get away from us. It's kind of attitude's been great. Um, attack in the first half was really good. Uh, we showed some promising attack of getting on the edges, um, attacking through the middle, then going using our using our skills. So it was really good. Uh, I suppose we just didn't really execute right on the edges, but other than that, I, I thought first half was was really good by the guys. Um, second half was probably where we just let ourselves down. Like I said, a few guys went down, but that's that's going to happen. We need, we need guys to stand up. Uh, it just pro- it wasn't a great performance from uh, myself individually. I know. Um, uh, some guys have to stand up when stuff starts going down. I'll, I'll probably let myself down a bit, but um, uh, that's just the way some games go. That's your spot at this hour. Stay tuned on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is Africa Digest. Recapping our top story, South Africa still plans to withdraw from the ICC despite a court ruling to the contrary. And Kenya plans to upscale plans to tap into the ocean economy. That wraps up Africa Digest. From myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Leander Maume, technical producer Debo Muswewu, and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments, send us an email at info.channelafrica.co.za or send an SMS on 277-969-57930 or tweet us at Channel Africa 1. Taking us to the top of the hour is Baby Please by Robbie Malinga and Kelly Kumalo. <laughs> Bucha la